electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. A rough day for Europe as the continent grapples with energy cuts, collapsing governments, and the first interest rate hike in 11 years, spurred, of course, by soaring inflation. How much worse will it get, and what does it mean for investors here? Plus, airlines under pressure. The CEO of Alaska Air joins us with a warning on why you should book your holiday plane tickets now. And earnings from Snap, Amex, Verizon, they're all on deck, especially after the a mess that AT&T is today. The stock's down 7%. We're going to have the key data points for each of these ahead in earnings exchange. But first, the breaking story of the day. The White House announcing President Biden has tested positive for COVID. Let's head to Kayla Tausche at the White House with the latest. Kayla? Kelly, President Biden is isolating in the White House resident right now after testing positive this morning on both an antigen and PCR test. His official Twitter account releasing this photo of him sitting at the desk at the office in the residence tweeting, folks, I'm doing just great. Thanks for your concern. Just called Senator Casey, Congressman Cartwright and Mayor Cognetti and my Scranton cousins to send my regrets for missing our event today, keeping busy. The president had been scheduled to travel to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, to talk about efforts by the administration to reduce gun crime. But instead, he is isolating today, being day zero of that five-day isolation that is expected to end on Tuesday if his symptoms and tests all align with CDC guidance. You're looking right here at President Biden yesterday in Massachusetts, where he traveled to talk about some climate initiatives that the White House has underway. Uh, He was shaking hands with many state officials. He traveled on Air Force One with top state lawmakers, as well as some senior White House officials. And the White House says that it is going to be notifying close contacts of the president throughout the day today. The first lady is one of those close contacts. She is traveling, talking about education in Michigan and Georgia. And the White House says she will be going to the family's home in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, where she will remain after that travel. Next hour, the White House will be holding a briefing with the press secretary and the White House's COVID coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha. And I expect we'll get many more details then. Kelly? Any policy or scheduling implications, Kayla? Obviously, the president just came back from that key Mideast visit. What's next for him? Well, certainly the White House had hoped that the president would be hitting the ground running, campaigning and talking about everything that the administration has been doing to try to drum up support for Democratic candidates in this run up into the midterm elections. But notably also on Capitol Hill, Democrats have been suffering from uh, some absenteeism from some of its own members who have tested positive positive themselves. Senator Tina Smith uh, testing positive for COVID this morning, bringing the Democrats vote count down to 48. So Over on the Hill, Kelly, there could be implications for whether Democrats have votes uh, to pass a party line package on health care that they've been negotiating for weeks at this point. Of course, uh, we wait to hear whether uh, the the virus has impacted Senators Markey and Warren, who were with the president yesterday. If they test positive for COVID, then that vote count would lower even further, Kelly. Wow, 48. That's a great point about the health care bill. Kayla, we'll check back in soon. Thank you for now. Our Kayla Townshie will keep following the story. And we will be hearing, like she said, from the president's 
Women's Doctors next hour. We'll bring that to you live. Meantime, let's head overseas to where Europe is facing its own trials. Brian Sullivan is in Germany with the latest on a continent on the brink. Brian? Yeah, Kelly, hi. Welcome here from Frankfurt, Germany. I mean, listen, this is a continent that maybe is not quite as much on the brink as it was just 24 hours ago. We were facing that what they called the gas cliff. Will that Nord Stream 1 pipeline turn back on? Won't it? Everybody was really on edge about it because if it didn't turn on, then of course there was almost immediate energy rationing was for sure. We're talking about going into a deep recession almost immediately. The collective European economy, remember, is gigantic. It is not quite the size of the United States, but it's not far off it. Germany, the fourth biggest economy in the world, but we got a bit of a reprieve, maybe a step back from that gas cliff a little bit today, but the problems are not resolved. If you missed the news, maybe if you're waking up in Hawaii, here you go, guys, which is that the Nord Stream 1 this morning did start pumping gas from Russia to Germany again. That is the good news. Here's the problem, though, guys, is that it's not at 100%. It just went back to that 40% level that it was at prior to when it went down 10 days for maintenance. And keep in mind, the Nord Stream is one of three pipelines coming into Germany. The other two, they're shut off, and they have been because of the Ukraine war and a dispute with Poland. So this is not 40% of gas coming into Germany. This is just 40% of that one pipeline. So here's the bottom line. The German energy crisis may have backed off a little bit, but it is by no means over. Putin making comments about, well, maybe this other turbine needs some problems or maybe there's going to be some issues. And so going into next week, there is that big question about whether or not this pipeline will continue to flow. To your point, Kelly, on a macro level, listen, Nord Stream energy kind of encompasses everything. I know you're gonna to talk to Fred Kemp in a minute. There are so many problems, not just energy facing this continent. You had the Italian Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, saying he is gonna quit. Of course, Boris Johnson in the UK, he stepped down a couple of weeks ago. The UK, by the way, facing its own crippling power issues. UK power costs, not at new records, but getting close. And there was a new report today that one in three UK households could face energy poverty when rates reset this October. So you've got all of this going on. Oh, and by the way, layer that on with some sovereign debt issues. You got credit default swaps in Italy and Greece and other countries. They're not soaring but they are rising. And so all of these things kind of, Kelly, feeling a little 2009-ish layered with an energy crisis that is far from resolved on top. I know people think, well, why do I care about Europe? Well, if you're GE, if you're Boeing, if you're Intel, if you're Nike, you sell a lot of goods, billions in products to Europe. If this economy goes down, it seems logical to think that we could see sales drop for American companies, lower those multiples, and maybe lower some stock prices on companies that are heavily exposed to Europe. So I also wonder if these reports are true that Spain and Greece and Portugal are resisting cuts to their energy usage. You know, you already have this fragmentation from some of the energy issues now, maybe as well from interest rate hikes that could re-exacerbate uh, the sovereign debt spreads you were just talking about. You know, we talk about fights between states in the United States. Kelly, this state does that, that state does this, whatever. There are some real fractures beginning to show in the European Union. I'm going to reference what you just talked about. The Spanish energy minister today saying, in fact, I'm going to summarize, those are Germany's problems. They basically overused their power. They did things wrong. We are not them. When the European Union is talking about this 15% voluntary, and I'm doing air quotes, voluntary cut, which, by the way, could become mandatory, Spain effectively today saying, 
why should we cut, right? These are Germany's problems. You're starting to see rumblings in France. France heavily nuclear. They've had some issues the last couple of weeks because of drought. But France, they're saying, well, these are not our problems as well. You do wonder if that energy wedge is going to start to maybe make many of these European nations kind of go back to their respective corners. There's a huge, you've traveled extensively. You lived in the UK for a while. Kelly, you know this. And any of our viewers that's traveled knows this. They're part of the EU, but Greece and Italy and Spain and Germany and France, they are very different countries. They are very different economies. They have very different histories. And you wonder how this is going to play out if the pan-Europe is being forced to suffer. Is somebody in Spain going to suffer because Germany has these power problems and they're trying to share the pain? That is the question. Maybe Fred can answer. Yeah. But that is ultimately the question that will have to be answered and will be answered, but not tomorrow. It may take a year or two. This is the beginning of the story, not the end. Yeah, they never really solved those underlying tensions. Uh, you know, it's not fully federalized like the U.S. is. And Mario Draghi solved it for a time, Brian, and we'll see what happens uh, if it flares up again. Brian, thanks so much. Our Brian Sullivan reporting. Now, as Europe does hurtle into an energy crisis that's causing fragmentation and infighting already, what's next and what are the implications for U.S. investors? Let's welcome in CNBC contributor Fred Kemp. He is president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Fred, do you want to just pick up where Brian left off, where we are seeing now uh, resentment breaking out across the continent? First of all, uh, amen to everything Brian said from Germany. It's great. He's on the front line. People think Ukraine is the front line, but there's a second front to Putin's war, and that's the natural gas front. Uh, and uh, one shouldn't celebrate too much North Stream coming back online. All that does is it gives uh, Putin uh, a chance to play even more with European publics. He can turn it down. He can turn it up. He can turn it off. But he's not going to turn it off entirely because, as the Wall Street Journal wrote on its front page today, if he uses that bullet, uh, he's got none left. So he's not going to do that. The argument that it was a turbine in repair, most people think that turbine is a red herring. Uh, and, uh, and he will use maintenance and sanctions issues again if he wants to put pressure on um, uh, on Europe. He is counting on democratic fatigue. He's got a war of attrition going in Ukraine. And right now his war has been going better. It's been a grind. It's been difficult, but he's gaining territory. And one has to see these two things as totally aligned. What the European Union is doing, the suggested and voluntary 15% cut over the next uh, eight months of natural gas. That is Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission. That's her effort to keep Europe unified. Rather than taking one country off against the other, as Brian suggested, could happen, she's setting a goal that's not so high, 15% reduction. Uh, and, uh, and, and she's saying we should do this across all countries so that we remain unified. It's less an economic argument. It's more of a political argument. What should investors do, Fred? There were memorable historic <laughs> bets uh, 10 years ago. Those who thought that spreads in Europe would uh, collapse back towards parity and those who bet that they would blow out and further widen. And you, so it, if people wanted, they could make a similar bet now, um, perhaps more prosaically. We have a lot of U.S. companies with big Europe exposure. And should investors be thinking about pairing that back or, again, leaning into this if, if we think this is all going to blow over? Well, if, you, if you're looking at the uh, economics of investing right now, you've got to bet on a European recession and, and inflation 
is is at a high and, and energy prices are high. But you also have to take a look at $210 billion that the EU is going to spend between now and 2027 to diversify energy sources and to get out of the business of being dependent on Russia altogether. So if you're a longer term investor, I think you look at where is that money going to go? Where are the people going to build up? Uh, let's also take a look at semiconductors. There's going to be some real uh, 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 building up of that capacity and chips capacity in Germany and elsewhere. And so I think one has to watch also uh, Europe is not just leery of Russia. It's also a little bit increasingly leery of being too dependent on China. Now, they're not going to give up the Chinese market, but you have to look at more uh, efforts to uh, have homegrown technology uh, and then also the building of the grid, uh, strengthening of the grid. And this is going to sound uh, a little bit uh, counterintuitive, Kelly, but look for nuclear companies, too, because uh, France, the French are 70 percent in favor of nuclear. The Germans are 70 percent against. But you heard the German economic minister to say, today saying, well, maybe we're going to have to find a way to keep our nuclear power going. That would be a big political shift. So uh, perhaps also in uh, not just renewables, uh, but also in nuclear energy. I just think there's a big question mark as well about inflation, where the eurozone has 8.6 percent inflation and they just did their first rate hike. And it's only by half a point to basically half a percent. That's not fighting inflation. No. And then you're going to find some real difficulty. And how does the ECB manage what it, the problem it had with Greece? And could you have a situation where uh, you have a, a, a debt crisis in Italy uh, and then again, uh, other parts have to decide how much they're going to get behind that? And, and does the ECB have the means to, to manage that? So I think the political tensions uh, that Brian is alluding to are going to grow not just in the energy front, but perhaps also in the debt and the interest rate front, where Germany is always not entirely aligned with Southern Europe when it comes to uh, the inflation. At the moment, Europe has been more united than disunited. We haven't seen Europe disunited for a very long time after the February 24th invasion. But there are going to be new strains and greater strains. And as I said, Putin is counting on Europe reverting to its old, way, old ways, which is being disunited and being fatigued and standing up to, to Putin. All right, Fred, we'll leave it there in a very difficult situation, uh, the continent. Fred, thank you very much. Fred Kemp. Thank you. Still ahead, Alaska Airlines selling off despite a record quarter. Can they keep navigating high fuel costs and capacity constraints? We've got the CEO exclusively next. Plus, Snap, Amex, Verizon, they're all set to report in the next 24 hours. We'll get you set with the numbers you need to know ahead of their results. And as we head to break, let's get a check on the markets. The Dow erasing a 340-point loss to turn positive by 12 today. The S&P up half a percent. The Nasdaq strong again, up nearly 1%, back over 12,000, even with the 10-year back on the rise to 295. The exchange is back after this. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
Specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Alaska Air down around 1.5% today, despite reporting a beat on the top and bottom lines. High demand and high airfares helping impose record revenue in the second quarter. They filled 90% nearly of seats in the quarter, which was another record. What's the plan for the rest of the year? Why aren't investors more impressed? Phil LeBeau joins us now with the CEO of Alaska Air, Ben Minicucci. Welcome, guys. Phil, kick things off. Uh, thank you, Kelly. Ben, I'll put that question straight to you. You had a great quarter. June. Record monthly revenue in June, topping a billion dollars. And yet, you guys are dealing with a lot of challenges, including jet fuel up almost 180% for the quarter. Let me start there. How much of that increase in jet fuel are you able to offset with higher airfares? Well, obviously, Phil, we're able to do a lot of that uh, with our second quarter, as you can see. And I'm, I'm so uh, grateful to our 23,000 employees at Alaska who did such a great job this quarter. Like you guys mentioned, it was a record revenue-generating quarter, 14% pre-tax margins. That will be at or near the top of the industry. So all the credit goes to our employees. And fortunately, with that revenue performance, we can offset most of the fuel prices. As you guys know, we spoke about it before. We do have good fuel hedges in place. Our fuel hedges will dampen you know, the cost of fuel by about $200 million this year. So uh, that's good news for us. Ben, you had a rough stretch late March, early April with a number of cancellations. Mm-hmm. You talked with me back then and said, look, we're going to bring down our capacity, our schedule to make sure that we can have a smoother operation. But your capacity is going to be limited in the third quarter and the rest of this year. How long does that continue? When do you think that you get back to pre-pandemic capacity levels? Phil, you know, three big points on that. Number one, our focus is a safe and reliable operation and making sure we have our staffing matching the capacity. So that's job number one. We had the rough spot at the start of the second quarter, but we got that under control, and I'm really confident that we'll execute well on that. Second big thing is we're doing a massive fleet transition in the fourth quarter. We are moving to an all-Boeing fleet. So we are retiring 38 320s and 10 321s over the course of uh, 2023. So the 320s are going at the end of this year, the 321s at the end of 23. So that is a big fleet transition that will impact our capacity plans. Uh, you know, and the third thing is, you know, delivery of airplanes. So we have to make sure that the delivery of airplanes with all the supply chain constraints out there, the delivery of airplanes meets our capacity plan. So we want to be a little conservative. We don't want to be too aggressive so we can meet uh, the customer expectations in terms of the schedule we're producing. Ben, it's Kelly here. Can I just pick up on that point? Delta announced its first major order with Boeing in a decade or so, 100 planes earlier this week. And you just said you guys are going to an all-Boeing fleet. Is that right? And why are you making that move? You know, Kelly, it's a great question. So we have uh, an order for 145 uh, Boeing MAX airplanes that we put in during the pandemic. And the reason to go to a single fleet, and we were there before the Virgin America transition, is single fleet lowers costs and allows us to be more productive. So when you look at the headwinds that are possible in the economy, this is one of the things we're trying to do that, to weather and dampen some of that, uh, some of that impact. So 
uh, single fleet on both uh, the mainline side with all 37 fleet. And then even on the regional side, we made the decision to go a single fleet. So we're going to retire the Bombardier Q400s and go to a, an entirely Embraer 175 fleet. So single fleet on both the mainline and regional. We'll bring our cost structure down. We'll get productivity up and really help us weather any headwinds that we see coming with the economy. Ben, with the uh, tighter schedule and higher airfares, have you seen any change in booking trends, particularly as we head towards the holidays? Do you expect people to book earlier? Because, look, let's be honest, there are fewer seats available. Yep, not sure. <laughs> hey, at least it froze on a nice smile. You know, <laughs> he looks upbeat. That <laughs> <laughs> Phil, thank you very much. By the way, Phil, That's after true. Alaska, we've heard from who is it United uh, as well. Who's next on tap earnings wise? Uh, next week, Southwest Airlines, really the last of the big four to report. And I think we're going to see a similar story here where you're going to see record revenue in the second quarter. But through these operational challenges and the fact that capacity, as much as they would want to bring back even more flights, there are limitations there, whether it's on the staffing side with the airline or with the airports, air traffic control. The system is just not up to full capacity at this point, yeah. Kelly. And I noticed he said, book now for your holiday travel, which is amazing. Phil, thank you for now. We'll leave it there. And thanks for bringing that to us. Our Phil LeBeau reporting. Still ahead, semiconductors are on pace for the three-week winning streak, believe it or not. That's their longest stretch in eight months. But after Micron's dire warning last month, are investors still waiting for the next shoe to drop? We'll explore that. Plus, markets may be on recession watch, but one money manager sees three areas of opportunity. The CIO of Nuveen has her picks coming up on The Exchange. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at Chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back, everybody. We've erased a huge decline today, but the Dow is fighting to stay positive. So we are down 341. We've been up as much as 55. Dow's currently down 27. But the S&P is up half a percent and the Nasdaq up double that amount as it continues its strong recent performance. Bitcoin is back in the red, though, hovering around 23,000, uh, just below that level right now, in fact. Uh, Ether holding above 1500 by about 50 bucks. Coinbase, we're keeping an eye on this one, down around 2.5%, but still back up to 73 in trading today. Check out crypto's comeback over the past week. We've still got 11% gain for Bitcoin, 30% for Ether, 37% for Coinbase, which is on pace for its best week ever, but only its second positive month in the past nine. Elsewhere, Tesla is leading the S&P after they beat earnings and gave a better than expected forecast. The shares are up 9% today to 812. 
2012, and they dumped 75 percent of their Bitcoin holdings, adding about a billion dollars in cash to the balance sheet. Carnival is meanwhile leading the cruise stocks lower after pricing a billion dollar stock offering reportedly at a 10 percent discount to yesterday's close. The stock is back under $10 a share today. It's putting pressure across the space. Stiefel says the latest sale dilutes shareholders by about 9 percent, meaning Carnival has now diluted its stock by 86 percent since the start of the pandemic. That's what happens when you have a lot of debt to service. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC News update. Bertha. Hey, Kelly. President Biden's Twitter account has posted a photo of him along with the message, folks, I'm doing great. Thanks for your concern. Keeping busy. The White House is scheduled to brief reporters about a half hour from now on the president's positive COVID test, and you'll see it here on CNBC. Former Minneapolis officer Thomas Lane has been sentenced to serve two and a half years in prison after his conviction on federal civil rights charges for his role in the death of George Floyd. Floyd's brother calls the sentence insulting. Citing concerns, the Supreme Court could go beyond its abortion ruling. House Democrats passed a bill today that guarantees a right to use contraceptives. Republicans accused the chamber's majority of manufacturing a crisis, saying there's no serious effort to prohibit them. And tonight on the news, the House's January 6th committee holds a primetime hearing on what then-President Trump did and didn't do as the Capitol was being attacked. A very busy day for the folks on The Shep Show, Kelly. Indeed. Bertha, thank you, Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, Snap, Amex, and Verizon on deck with results. From ad spending to consumer spending, recession fears a factor in all three. What to expect and how to position next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. A busy time for earnings. And we've got the action, the story, and the trade on three key names on deck. Let's start with Snap, whose shares are down 65% this year, in part thanks to that big dip in late May after the CEO warned the company would miss estimates, blaming the faster-than-expected deterioration of the macro environment. But Snap shares are up 19% this week. Julia Borson has the story for us. Danielle Shea has our trades. She is the VP of Options at Simpler Trading. Welcome to both of you. Julia, what are the key numbers to watch? Well, Kelly, first I have to go to that warning that CEO Evan Spiegel gave at the end of May. He said that due to a deterioration of the market, that they did not expect to hit the lower end of their guidance range. We see the stock rebounding this week because maybe there's this hope that maybe he was being a little conservative. So I think we have to remember that he gave that warning in May. He has been incredibly transparent about all the ad trends they've seen. So we're watching that. There are a couple of factors here. One is this macroeconomic question. Are we seeing an advertising pullback? And then there's a second question of what are the factors that are specific to SNAP? One, how are they navigating those Apple operating system changes? And then two, this question of engagement. Another number to watch here, Kelly, 12 million. That's how many daily active users the company is expected to add in the quarter. So we're watching that number closely. And then, of course, Outlook. Anything that Spiegel says about his expectations for the second half of the year, that's going to be in the spotlight. All right. Uh, Danielle, what are you watching and what would you do with the stock here? Kelly, you know what's really interesting about this stock and about this earnings season in general is that because sentiment is so negative, what we're seeing is companies like this rallying ferociously after earnings. So I want to be clear in the fact that I don't think that Snapchat is any kind of amazing company. 
But I do think that because the sentiment is so weak, they have space to run. When you look at how they performed on earnings over the last eight quarters, the majority of the time they beat and actually they've had massive moves post earnings multiple times. So when I look at the technical pattern right here, you can see that we're breaking to a new recent high. There's also a big gap fill around the 20 to $21 price point. With the incredibly high implied volatility in this name, I think it makes sense to come in and sell puts because I think that if the news is anywhere better than expected, it's most likely going to continue to break through 16 and trade up onto $20. So I think it's worth a trade. Yeah, and as you said, and, and maybe it's obvious and maybe it's not, but that you don't think it's ever going to reach that $83 price point again. Julia, anything you'd add to that? And what is the, the kind of bigger macro signal we're looking for here? Can a company like Snap tell us uh, the state of the ad market at this point? Well, look, I think it's been fascinating to listen to Evan Spiegel talk about the deterioration of the ad market. And this is a company that went from very fast revenue growth up through February 24th of this year and then saw increasing challenges starting with that Russia invasion of Ukraine. And they really saw that impact accelerate over the course of the year. So I think there is this hope for the rest of the companies that are ad supported that we might get some insight into these macro trends. But despite those macro, um, those macro questions, Snap is unique um, in a lot of ways, and so we'll see whether they can use that uniqueness to their advantage um, and build on some of their, their relationships, such as with the media companies, et cetera, with the premium content that they're putting ads on, um, or whether they sort of get dragged down into some of these other issues, such as those ad targeting and measurement headwinds. All right, and we'll watch those daily active users. Ladies, stay right there as we move from Snap to Verizon, a kind of new tech, high valuation to old tech, low valuation. Verizon shares are down about 9% this year, but falling 3% today in sympathy with AT&T after AT&T lowered free cash flow guidance and its shares are down 7%. Julia, now what for Verizon? Well, look, this is an incredibly competitive space. These are two rivals, and it makes sense that when AT&T would issue such warnings that Verizon would move down in sympathy. The question is whether Verizon issues similar re results and also similar warnings. A couple interesting things to note from AT&T that we should be watching for Verizon. It's subscriber additions, specifically this particular kind of lucrative mobile subscriber, postpaid phone subscribers. In the first quarter, Verizon actually lost 36,000 in that category, while rivals AT&T and T-Mobile both added hundreds and thousands. So investors are looking for growth there. And then there's this question about small and medium businesses. That's a sector that's under pressure. It's typically a very um, positive sector for all of these telcos, particularly during the pandemic. So we'll see what they give us in terms of those numbers, but also in terms of any ability to raise prices, um, any price elasticity there. And then one thing I just want to mention is that AT&T said some of them, their subscribers are taking more time to pay their bills, and that's impacting cash flow. Yeah. That does seem to be reflecting macroeconomic issues, Kelly, so we'll see how much Verizon sees that same issue. That was a major headline, absolutely, Julia. And Danielle, you think they might have done them a favor, uh, AT&T might have done Verizon a favor here, why? I do think they might have done them a favor because what we've seen through AT&T is they've already announced the issues that this particular industry group are facing. And so, you know, it's highly likely that Verizon's having the exact same issues. They're probably going to announce something similar because the stock has already fallen today. I just think a lot of that move is going to be priced in unless they have something to say that's, you know, completely shocking 
Um, I would expect this earnings move to be a little bit more of a non-event. Right now, we're sitting down on you know about the 44 price point. You have about a $2 expected move on earnings. I think that as long as it can hold 43, 44, it's at a key area of support. This isn't a high growth stock by any means, but earnings are relatively stable. The dividend is relatively stable. I don't see any reason to sell it, but I don't really see any reason to buy more shares either. Yeah. So if you're a shareholder, I would just the course stable seems to be the watch look the pe is below nine so uh, to your point you know for a dividend payer and it with the uncertainty in the macro uh, verizon may have a leg to stand on here let's move along then and hit amex before we go because the dow component is up eight percent in the past week as they contend with that consumer that still seems to be spending but for how much longer kate rooney is here with the story for us kate Hey, Kelly, that is the big question. Consumer spending, and this is going to be the first of the credit card names out for earnings. Very much a bellwether for the rest of the payment space. We'll get Visa and MasterCard next week. Cross-border payment is the big thing, cross-border transactions. Uh, it, it tends to be a higher margin part of the business for all of these card companies and really has been the bull case. That recovering people traveling again, spending in Europe, and consumer spending in general. So anything Amex says here on cross-border payments. It's going to have huge implications for others in the space and the other credit card companies. Next week, watch that consumer spending as well, any of this discretionary spending and any signs of a recession. The credit card companies in the prior quarters have said we're not seeing it yet. Will that change this quarter and the second quarter? And we'll get a read in the high-end consumer in particular. Morgan Stanley actually downgraded AXP a couple weeks ago and blamed lower expectations for spending for that high-end consumer. They talked about inflation and that's starting to hit Wealthier consumers, uh, not to mention the stock market right now, they tend to be more invested in that cohort in the market. It hasn't been a great year for equities, so that's been another thing people are pointing out. It's weighing on their pocketbooks. What's happening here with the high-end consumer? We'll find out more for Amex tomorrow. Kate, you're in the building. <laughs> I know. You started talking. I go, I hear her. She's right hear, over there. I hear an echo. I know, Callan, oh, right across the room. Very exciting. <laughs> All right, Danielle, we, that downgrade was a biggie a couple of weeks ago. Did that help lower expectations for the quarter? I think it did. I think a lot of the news that's come out over the past three or four weeks has really helped lower expectations going into earnings. And when you look at the overall pattern on this chart, I mean, obviously it's down, it's trading lower. The daily chart trend is not looking very positive, but I think the stock is falling along with the rest of the market. If you look at the longer term weekly chart trend, I would actually say it's quite positive. And the fact that they've actually increased their dividend just about two quarters ago, uh, when you look at the way that Visa and MasterCard reported the last two quarters, American Express as well, I mean, all three of them have done well. I think that in this environment, yes, obviously we have to consider consumer spending, you know, if that's going to wane. But the fact of the matter is, is that these credit card companies, I mean, what we are seeing right now is that consumers are being forced to put more purchases on credit cards at higher interest rates due to inflation and the current economic circumstances. So I actually think that, you know, all three of these companies, particularly American Express being my favorite, um, are really good long-term winners. And if this stock could break out above 150, I think that's where it would reverse the trend and head back onto the upside. And it's at 148. Danielle, let me ask you this. If we're starting to see better stock action at precisely the time we see worse headline flow from these earnings reports, does that tell you we're bottoming? You know, I'm not looking for the bottom bottom, but I do think that at least over the course of the next week or so, we are continuing to head higher, particularly just because sentiment has been so negative. And what we're seeing is that we're seeing buyers come in when 
the expectations are already priced in. So I am on a short-term basis starting to do some more purchases, trade more to the upside. I don't think that the bottom for the year is in, but at the very minimum, a lot of these earnings reports are providing a lot of trading opportunity and shorter term opportunities, especially to the upside. All right. We will leave it there. Thank you both. Danielle Shea, Kate Rooney, I'm going to come chase you down in just a moment here. And still ahead, one of America's largest ports remains shut down as truckers protest California's gig law. We've got the latest, the supply chain fallout, and who else is watching this battle very closely? Welcome back. Terminals at the Port of Oakland, the eighth largest port in the country, are shuttered officially for the second day in a row. But trucker protests have slowed activity, activity significantly for the past four days. What are they protesting? The contentious California gig law. That law classifies workers as employees instead of independent contractors. And a two-year legal stay that protected truckers from the law was recently lifted after the Supreme Court decided not to hear the case. CNBC's Lorianne Loraco is here with the very latest. Lorianne? Thanks, Kelly. That's right. An estimated 70,000 truckers would be impacted by this law as two-thirds of the drivers who move containers in California ports are independently owned and operated. At the Port of Oakland alone, more than 2,100 trucks go through the terminals each day. And the conflict has led the Oakland Shoreman Union, the ILWU, elect not to enter the terminal, citing safety concerns because of going through the crowds. And this labor shortage is the reason why the ports are closed, because there is no labor. The impact of the shutdown is also showing up on the U.S. supply chain heat map by CNBC, which tracks information of various logistics data companies. It's a sea of red, Kelly, and the time the containers are sitting at the ports is huge. Check it out. Because if every day the port is closed, it takes at least two days for the congestion to clear up. Now, also, check out this chart from Project 44. This shows the amount of time an import container is waiting to get picked up. Right now, it's over 16 and a half days. Last week, it was over 15 days. And marine traffic has also identified vessels diverting away from Oakland to other ports, such as Long Beach. But it's not just the Oakland port seeking, uh, seeing this turmoil. Last week, there was a small protest of the ports of both LA and Long Beach. And there could be another one soon, as sources tell me they are frustrated with the response from the governor's office. And the impact of last week's protests were not as severe thanks to the size of those ports. But remember, any trucker disruption would slow things down and add to the existing congestion. And remember, the ports are still plagued with the rail issues where containers there are waiting at least 11 days. No, and you bring up Governor Newsom, who's obviously eyeing the White House at some point. This will be a major testing ground for him. Uh, you mentioned moving to some of the East Coast ports. What's the status there? What's the latest? Well, we're continuing to see, you know, the, the vessels um, moving over to the East Coast, and we're seeing them increase. Now, let's take another look at that heat map. Um, back where we're seeing where Savannah, they're seeing a backup of 36 vessels waiting over at the port anchored. That's $1.2 million in trade floating out at sea right now, and that's half of the month's volume of what Savannah normally handles. But marine traffic tells me rerouting ships to other ports like Charleston may not solve the problem, but rather create a ping-pong congestion effect 
And what we need to look for next then, are the ocean carriers going to start canceling port arrivals because of the congestion? And is this just a U.S. issue because of the California gig law and some uh, of those idiosyncrasies? What about Europe? How are things over there looking? Well, as you know, we've been following Europe for quite some time, and the labor strife, of course, has always been the big story, but now it's the hot weather. And that hot weather has decreased levels in the inland waterways. And sources are telling me this is impacting the movement of grain, like wheat, fertilizer, coal, and animal products. Grain prices, as we all know, have already increased as a result of Russia's war on Ukraine, and these delays are not going to help. Take a look at the heat map. The barge operators on the Rhine have had to cut down on their max capacity of payloads so vessels don't get stuck in the water. And on top of that, the labor strikes have crippled German ports, as you can see. They're still facing a two-and-a-half-month backup in containers, and there could be another strike as early as August 24th. Well, a good reminder, we saw downgrades even just this morning on some consumer products companies citing these ongoing freight costs and, and challenges, and this is exactly where this is uh, stemming from. Lorianne, thanks. Keep us posted. Thanks. Our Lorianne LaRocco. Coming up, recession worries are looming from Wall Street to Main Street, but my next guest has three areas of opportunity. She'll reveal them right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Investors keep debating if Wall Street's July comeback is marking the bottom or just a bear market rally. But my next guest sees three areas of opportunity regardless. Joining us now is Sarah Malik. She's Nuveen's CIO and head of the firm's Global Investment Committee. Sarah, good to have you. You know, we don't want to always play the prediction game. It's better to just say, all right, given the possible range of outcomes, what's your best advice to investors here? Well, we're looking for areas where you can get paid to take risk because there's a lot of uncertainty out there. The three areas that we like are U.S. growth stocks. Within uh, fixed income, we're focusing on high yield in taxable and municipal bonds and also farmland, which are a strong inflation hedge. They have often CPI escalators written into their contracts. And within fixed income, fundamentals remain strong for you, municipals and high yield, and you can generate seven plus percent returns in those areas. And then U.S. growth stocks very beaten down, but they're less leveraged to economic growth. And the manufacturing and employment data that we're seeing recently tells us the economy is going to slow. So we want to own those companies that can grow with their own levers to pull. A couple of follow-ups there. One, if you could talk a little bit about what's going on in the credit space, where from all accounts, it sounds like the mood is improving a little bit the last couple of weeks. So what, what is that telling us and where are the best opportunities? A lot of the pain has been priced into fixed income. That, that's why we're seeing that those areas of the market react a little more strongly. These aggressive upfront Fed rate hikes are getting priced into these markets. The returns of some of these areas are higher than we've ever been. For example, high yield fixed income. A lot of those companies are in the energy space. They have very strong balance sheets. And then municipal bonds, while they've been unduly hit hard because a lot of these municipalities have very strong balance sheets, strong coffers, and that's the backing for these bonds. So those are a couple of areas in fixed income that we think look attractive and then start to take baby steps back towards duration in, in this kind of environment where, again, a lot of the bad news has been priced into these segments. Well, I think the same kind of question I would ask about when, you know, some of the high yield and 7 8 percent range would apply maybe to the growth stocks that you also favor, which a lot of investors may not have the stomach for. You know, they would say, well, what about those companies, whether it's credit or equity side, where they've gone through a valuation reset that needed to happen. You know, they were just trading way too tight or, or way too frothy, you know, 18 months ago. And, and we don't expect them uh, to go back to those levels ever. 
But we need to focus on the fundamentals when it comes to these growth stocks. There is a segment of the market, unprofitable technology, speculative growth stocks. I think these companies are going to have a hard time uh, coming back. But we're talking about like leaders like Salesforce in the software space, uh, you know, with the cloud business that remains strong, even Amazon, which now has so much control over its own logistics and supply chain. It should continue to grow even post the pandemic as we're so comfortable with doing things digitally. These kind of companies that we think are interesting, but we're staying away from those companies with weak balance sheets, high debt, and also uh, you know, the inability to generate profits in this kind of environment. And you feel comfortable in financials here? The financials were more neutral. We're worried about the consumer and the credit cycle for the consumer. But with the big banks, uh, you know, capital markets is an issue. And then trading has been their upside. But the question is whether that's sustainable. We actually like Fifth Third. They reported today. It's a regional bank, well-diversified business in the Midwest and Southeast, strong momentum banking driving their businesses. Also, they tend to pay higher than average industry wages. So they're protected from inflation. And also, they, they're leveraged to higher interest rates, but without the risk of that capital markets business. So we like the smaller financials. Big financials, I think, could continue to struggle for the long term. Interesting. Sarah, always bringing us a little bit of that, that counterintuitive perspective we greatly appreciate. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having Sarah me. Sarah Malik with Nuveen. Coming up, the Phillips Semiconductor Index, the socks. Your socks are up. Uh, they're up more than 6% this week. And while chipmakers have been growing revenues for more than a year and a half, investors are worried about diving back in. One company has already guided lower, whether it is or isn't the canary in the coal mine. That's next. Welcome back. Before we go, check out the semis. They're actually having a pretty strong week so far. The SMH ETF, which we're showing here, is up more than 7% week to date. That means since Monday. It's Thursday, right? Uh, but the street is keeping a keen eye out for any guidance from individual companies in upcoming results. Christina Partsonevelis is here with what they're watching. Christina? Well, thank you, Kelly. I'm going to piggyback on what you said because you had the Sox and the SMH that are both outperforming the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 over the past four days. But don't be fooled by the run-up as earnings season may be overshadowed by some weaker company outlooks and lower guidance. What do I mean by that? First, let's look at total semi-revenue. Semiconductor revenue has been climbing for the past 20 months, and that's the longest stretch in recent history since the great financial crisis. But semiconductors are considered cyclical. Like you can see on your screen, the similarities between revenue for semiconductors and GDP growth. When a slowdown in the economy occurs, semiconductor revenue follows. And yet, Micron is the only company to lower its CapEx budget. When, big question now, are other companies going to have their Micron moment and guide down as well? Taiwan Semiconductor indicated that its 2023 CapEx spend will come at the lower end of its range. And although ASML had a stellar quarter and the stock is up over 3% today, it cut its revenue growth guidance for the rest of this year. And analysts are finally taking notice. Goldman Sachs chip analysts recently slashed their 2023 earnings forecast by an average of 20% for chip and chip equipment makers. Deutsche Bank and KeyBank made similar moves. And then Citibank today wrote a note saying that they believe not one semiconductor company will be spared in the second half of this year, but they do believe an earnings pop is coming in the very near term, placing bets on NXP and on Semi. NXP for, uh, is going to be out with their earnings on Monday. So there is no doubt semiconductor demand will remain robust, especially over the next several years with the transition to auto, AI and data centers. But the street is warning that this upcoming rally may be a rally in risk. Christina, thank you very much, Christina Partsonevelis. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.